Something. <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. Okay, let's uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Well, how's the heater coming? Have we got the heater problem solved? No heater problem. No heater. Printer, my printer broke. Had to email my notes to Bryce so he could uh, print them out and bring them to me tonight. And the sound is not getting to the uh, tape up in the upper room. So is, is, is it working now? Okay, good. One down, two to go. We need to pray that the angels, uh, guardian angels of technology would wake up and get with it. Okay, John, are you in a semblance of being ready since I can't see you? This I recall to mine and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he will sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Yahweh is everlasting life. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. After all the uh, ups and downs, trying to get ready, I think we all need to uh, refocus, concentrate, so we can concentrate on the study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the wonderful privilege we have to study Your Word, that You have revealed these things through the inspiration, through the apostles, and that The Holy Spirit guided them along so that what they wrote was without error. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us, the Holy Spirit who fills us, the Holy Spirit who is our teacher and our guide, and that this spiritual life which we have in this age is uniquely empowered by Him. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and how they apply in our own lives, and we might be challenged by the eternal truths of your Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Verse 4. Now, in light of the technological testing we've had this evening, I had to uh, email these notes over to Bryce, and Bryce printed them. But Bryce's computer is not trilingual. It only prints in English. It doesn't print in Hebrew and Greek. So normally I have, uh, I don't even bring my Greek text to class with me because uh, I have all the Greek in my notes. Tonight I have to juggle my Greek text back and forth and figure out what this gobbledygook is in my notes that is the English verbiage of the, oh I've got mine right here. Uh, that is the English verbiage 
but it, the, the letters are different, so it doesn't make sense. So we'll just kind of move along and see how it goes this evening. James 4.4 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, one thing we ought to know right away is that James, all of a sudden, is getting very harsh with his readers. Up to this point, James has been very smooth in the way he's addressed them. Over and again, we pointed out that he calls them my brothers, my beloved brothers, he says on a couple of occasions. He is very calm throughout most of this epistle. Then all of a sudden, when we get to this verse, he is very harsh, and he takes the gloves off, and he finally gets to the underlying problems in this congregation. Everything he has said before is wrapped around the idea of testing. They're going through various testing, and he's been encouraging them in how they, on the doctrine they need to apply and how they need to go forward in order to grow and handle adversity and have some spiritual growth. But when he gets to this point, he has to address some basic problems that are causing divisions, that are causing conflicts, that are causing quarrels, almost to the point of warfare in the congregation that he is addressing. Now, there's a couple of things that we ought to note about this. And first of all, just the Greek word, because that is very important from an interpretive standpoint, to always make sure you understand the Greek text. Now, it starts off with the vocative feminine plural of the noun moikales. Looks like this. M-O-I-C-H-A-L-E-S. Now, this is from the Greek, from the root noun, moikeia, which means adultery. Now, it's very interesting to note that he is using the word adultery and not the word that is often found in passages like this, porneia, which means immorality. Why does he use porneia instead of, mokeia rather, adultery instead of immorality? Well, first of all, at its essence, adultery is sexual relations between two people who are not, who are married, but not to each other, or at least one of them is married, but they are not married to each other. So there is a contract that exists between a man and a woman, and, well, for this case, we'll take the man, and he is having an adulterous relationship with another woman. So he is breaking the contract. He is a contract breaker. Now, I think this is very important for understanding the background to this passage, because in porneia, in immorality, fornication, the two parties do not have to be married. There's no contract in the background. Now, why is that important? Because he's a, it tells us that he is addressing believers, not unbelievers. Because you see, the believer is in a contractual relationship with God based upon the new covenant established by Jesus Christ at the cross. The covenant is a contract. God, in Christianity and in Judaism, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know why in the Old Testament he's always referred to as God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? is because that distinguishes him from all the other gods. You know, people come along with all kinds of systems and all kinds of religious systems and, and pseudo-Christian concepts, and they just sort of baptize it with the word God. If they can stick these three letters up there, somehow that makes it Christian. But that doesn't. There's all kinds of things. You have to ask the question, what do you mean by God? What do those three letters represent? You can hear all kinds of people talk about getting in touch with the supreme being or higher power or God. But if that God is not specifically defined as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, the Father of the eternal Father of Jesus Christ, then whatever is being referred to by this God may be simply nothing more than the projection of man's imagination into some supernatural field. It may be just the uh, uh, enlargement of some uh, prince, abstract principle into some, and, and then deified. Just because it has these three letters associated with it does not necessarily mean it's talking about the God of the Bible. Now, if you examine all of the world religions, from Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Mormonism, whatever it might be, it is only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is only the God of Christianity that puts himself in a contractual relationship with man. Abraham, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the New Covenant, uh, the Real Estate Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, all of these are God's contracts with man. So that man's relationship with God is always based on on a legal, always has a legal basis. Not law in the sense of legalism, but it is always based on a contract that God has established. And in the case of the New Covenant, it is an unconditional or one-sided contract. Only the Mosaic Covenant is a two-sided or or conditional contract. So God has established a contract between Himself and man. He's... He, does, he is not in a contractual relationship with an unbeliever. But he is in a contractual relationship with a believer. So this is telling us, by the fact that he uses uh, or moikalides instead of porneia, tells us that he's still talking and recognizing that he's talking to believers. Now it's interesting, there's a pastor out on the West Coast who's become quite well known around the country because of his adherence to and promotion of what's called Lordship Salvation. Lordship Salvation says that you have to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, which is absurd. He is Lord from all eternity, whether I make Him so or not. That uh, the only way you know that you are saved is because of uh, the evidence in your life that uh, works demonstrate the reality of your conversion. And it also teaches that there are two kinds of faith in Christ. There is a kind that is truly saving and a kind that is not. It's just sort of an intellectual self-deception. And the only way you can tell the difference, of course, is evidence. This is what's known as Lordship Salvation. One of the basic problems with Lordship Salvation is that they have a fundamental problem 
with the fact that Christians still have a sin nature that is as wicked and evil as it is before they were saved. That there is nothing you can do before salvation that you can't still do after salvation. And this is one of the major problems. And just so happens that he's written a commentary on James that's come out in the last couple of years. And in there, he has some problems, of course, with James 2. But when he comes to this section, he has some real problems. And in order to avoid his problems, he has to make James all of a sudden shift from talking to believers to talking to unbelievers. And this was, I read about, read a book review of his commentary and the reviewer from Dallas Seminary was at least perceptive enough to recognize that uh, one of his fundamental flaws was he, in order to make it fit, James fit his theology, about every other paragraph he had to change who he was addressing from believers in this paragraph. Now, now, he's, now he's talking to unbelievers. And the reason he has to say that is because he's got this underlying problem with saying that a person, a believer, can be truly saved and then turn his back on God. And this is a term that the Scriptures call it being a backslider. And that's a good old King James word, and it's used in uh, Proverbs. What was that reference we looked up, Barry? Proverbs 15, Proverbs 14. A backslider gets bored with his ways, but a good man is satisfied in his ways. And this is what we call reversionism, and we're going to spend this evening going through the doctrine of reversionism as it underlies this particular passage. So James addresses his readers. They are believers, and that's clear from this word. As adulteresses, why? Because they are being unfaithful to God. They are not applying the word. They are turning their back on Him, and they are operating by putting their affections on human viewpoint thinking, worldly thinking. It says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And here we have the word translated friendship is philos. It is the Greek word, in the text it's philia, and the noun form is philos, which has to do with attraction. It's one of four words the Greeks used for love, only two of which are found in the Scripture. It's different from agape, agape, which has to do with unconditional love. Philos often emphasizes attraction and uh, attention and affinity. So what James is saying is, don't you realize that if you are still attracted to the world... Now, what does he mean by world? The world here is from the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos refers to an orderly system. And it refers in the Scriptures primarily, although it has some other meanings... When it's used in this sense, it's referring to an orderly system of thinking. It is not talking about specific kinds of overt actions. That may be implied within the word at some secondary level because these actions, for example, here you have overt sins of, uh, 
of uh, antagonism and you have sins of the tongue and they're quarreling with one another and there's conflicts and, and James says you lust and do not have so you commit murder, you're envious. Now all of this flows out of the fact that they are letting their thought, the way they think and what they think about, their thought life is dominated by the world system. No matter what you might think, and in our society, we're told that, that one of the great sins is exclusivity. Exclusivity is when I say there's only one way to God. When the Bible says there's only one way to God, there's only one right way to do things, human viewpoint thinking, the thinking of the world, says that that is exclusive and that's wrong. There's many different ways to God. How do you have the nerve to say you know the truth and everybody else is wrong and there's only one way to God. You have to you know, at least respect everybody else's views and that they can be right. Well, I can respect their views, but they're still wrong. The Bible says there's only two systems. You know, We want to say that there's a hundred different world religions or two hundred different philosophies or three hundred different ways of, of living life. The Bible says there's only two. There is divine viewpoint as expressed in the Scriptures, and then there is human viewpoint. Human viewpoint can also be called paganism because it is in contrast to, it is non-Christian. But even in the Old Testament, uh, before you had a, the use of the word Christian, uh, so paganism is probably the best overall term. It's not, it's a te- paganism is a technical term for non-Christian thinking. Paganism is not an insulting or pejorative term. Now, some people might use it that way, and maybe that's your experience or background. But pagan refers to anybody who is any system of thought that is in contradiction to what is expressed in the Scriptures. So I like to use the designation human viewpoint thinking, and there's no matter what that system might be, whether it's socialism, whether it's uh, democratic ideals, whether it's some form of totalitarianism or fascism, whether it's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Hinduism, Buddhism, Monism, whatever it might be, it's all the same. Ultimately, if you take any world system and you push it far enough and you dig deep enough, it's all going to break down into two things. C.S. Lewis made the observation that really you only have two ways of looking at things. It's either the Christian way or Hinduism. He thought that, that, of course, you have certain things like Mormonism and, and in some sense, Islam is a Judeo-Christian heresy. Mormonism is a Judeo-Christian heresy. Uh, But he said you can break everything down into either some form of Christianity or some form of, of Hinduism. And I think he's basically right. We don't have time to get into all of that uh, tonight. But we just have to realize that you are either operating in one of these two spheres. We've seen this same kind of breakdown with Paul in Galatians, where Paul talks about the fact that you are either walking by means of the Spirit or you're walking according to the flesh. So he uses that terminology. Because what energizes human viewpoint thinking is the flesh, the sin nature. Divine viewpoint thinking comes only as a result of God who has revealed himself propositionally in Scripture through the Holy Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit then who illuminates our thinking to understand 
the Word of God. And so we're either operating over here or we're operating by means of the Holy Spirit. If we're operating on the sin nature, the fundamental characteristic is arrogance, human autonomy. Man wants to redefine everything in terms of his own thinking. He doesn't want to take God's word for it, and he rejects God's word. And God over here asserts that he is the creator of everything. So by virtue of the fact that he is the creator God and the sovereign God of the universe, he has the right to define what everything is. And that's why there is complete antagonism between these two systems. So what James is addressing to them is that when believers get involved and they're living in in an extended carnality situation, operating on human viewpoint thinking, which includes a human viewpoint value system, which produces a human viewpoint priority system, and affects all the principles by which you govern your, your life and your thinking, there may be on the surface apparent similarities because, frankly, these people have to live in God's world, which is governed by divine laws. And so in order to work within that reality, there's going to be maybe 90% affinity at times because they can't live, they can't truly live outside of God's world and make their own laws. So there's always going to be an apparent similarity. What's important is not the similarities, but the differences. And when you're operating on arrogance as your fundamental mental attitude, then it is always going to produce a certain amount of fragmentation in the life. And we've been studying that under the arrogant skills on Sunday morning. Arrogant skills are four. There is self-absorption, which focuses on the mental attitude where you're looking at life, defining it in terms of your own thinking, your own authority. Then you begin to live that out, and that's self-indulgence, fulfilling all your own lusts and desires. This then leads to self-justification, which in turn leads to self-deception. In self-justification, you start overtly restructuring your view of reality, so now you are divorced from reality, and that leads to extreme subjectivity, and in this case, you can no longer honestly and objectively understand reality. And the further, as we're going to see in a few minutes, the further, further you go down this path, and this really creates a cycle that goes deeper and deeper and deeper, further a person goes down that path, uh, the more difficult it is for them to have any proper understanding of the Word of God. And if you've been involved in this kind of a lifestyle for very long, it eventually gets to the point where the Bible appears to be so radically different from your frame of reference that the Bible becomes something that's evil. So James says, you adulteresses, in other words, you are covenant breakers, you are not uh, fulfilling, living in light of the contract with God, you're being unfaithful to God. Do you not know that friendship, that is attraction to the kind of thinking in the world, and this is always putting pressure on us, that the kind of thinking that the world has is hostility towards God. You've got to make a choice as to what your thinking is. If your thinking is oriented to the world and you're not willing to renovate your thinking, then you as a believer have made yourself an enemy to God. And there's no way to sugarcoat that. 
That's exactly the way it is. If you are not operating on God's principles, God's plan, operating on the sufficiency of God's promises and God's truth, then you are an enemy toward God. Friendship with the world is hostility or antagonism toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, and that is from the Greek word bulamai, which emphasizes to will, to choose, and it brings to bear the volitional responsibility of the act that whether you are aware of it or not, see, most of us, as we grew up, we were consistently impacted by human viewpoint thinking, by worldly thinking. Now, let me remind you that when James defines this kind of thinking over in chapter 3, In chapter 3.15, he used three adjectives to describe it. It was earthly, it was natural, and it's demonic. This is the same kind of thinking, the philosophy of of all human viewpoint thinking. Whether it's liberal human viewpoint thinking, conservative human viewpoint thinking, whether it's eastern thought, western thought, irrational thought, it is all undergirded by by the... thought system, and the rationales that were characteristic of Satan's fall. That's why it's called demonic. It is basically demonic thinking. It is the kind of thinking that promoted the rebellion in eternity past of Lucifer and the fallen angels against God. (coughs) So Bulamai emphasizes the fact that this is a volitional decision as we grow up we're continuously propagandized and bombarded by human viewpoint thinking. That structures our entire frame of reference and, um, and thinking up until the time we become a believer. Now, at that point on, we are to renew our thinking according to Romans 12.2. We renew our thinking. Why? Because our thinking from the foundation up has been based on human viewpoint thought systems. It's not only what we think, it's how we think. It is thinking in terms of human autonomy in in rationalism, in empiricism, and in mysticism, in all of our basic thought forms. That's why when I teach on this, it's hard to think about our thinking, but it's even hard, I mean, it's hard enough to think, but it's really difficult to think about our thinking. And what we have to do is think about how we think about things. And that's what James is getting at here, is that if you still have this affinity and and this attraction to thinking about life the way the world thinks about life, that is basically antagonism to God, and you make yourself out to be an enemy to God. So let's introduce ourselves to the doctrine of reversionism. Point number one, every human being is born with a sin nature, and all of our deeds, thoughts, and words proceed from that sin nature. So we're all born with that sin nature. The area of uh, weakness produces personal sins. The area of strength produces human good. 
But everything flows out of that sin nature. And there is nothing you can do up to the moment of your salvation that is not tainted by sin. So that's why the Scripture says all of our righteousnesses, even the very best that you do under human good, even if you're exceptionally moral and religious, the Scripture says that all of our righteousness is, are as filthy rags. It has no value in the sight of God because God's righteous standard is absolute perfection and we fall far short of that. So every human being is born with a sin nature. Everything that, come, that we produce, every thought, word, and deed, proceeds from that sin nature. After salvation, the believer is free from that dominion. See, you only have one choice. Even though you have volition, you can be positive or negative to God. Up until the point that you are saved, you only have one choice, and that's to follow the dictates of your sin nature. It is not until salvation, at that point, through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, who identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the doctrine known as positional truth, that that power is broken, that dominion is broken, but the presence is still there. And now you have true free choice. Because now, for the first time, after salvation, after you put, express faith alone in Christ alone, and you are saved, you can actually make choices under the filling of the Holy Spirit that produce not human good, but divine good. Never could do that before you were saved. Everything was was um, filthy rags. Point number two. All sins can either be classified as pre-salvation sins or post-salvation sins. At this point of birth, you live until you're, let's say, 17 years old. And at the age of 17, somebody presents the gospel to you and you accept Christ as your Savior. So for 17 plus years, you committed, let's say, 10 to the 573rd power sins. Every one of those sins was paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. So at the point of salvation, those sins are all forgiven. Now let's look at it this way. We talk about the three phases of salvation. Here's our overhead. Three phases of salvation. Phase one is justification. We get everything at this point. Everything is delivered in one package deal at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. We are justified, we are positionally sanctified, and it guarantees our eventual glorification. Now at this stage, let's call phase one, move that up just a little bit, we're going to call phase one salvation S1. We're going to call phase two salvation S subscript two. And we're going to call phase three salvation S subscript three. Can you all even see that? Maybe I'll do it this way. Okay. Now, at, at the cross, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, He paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. So the penalty is paid for. At the point of phase one salvation, we get forgiveness one, F for forgiveness. 
we get forgiveness one. Forgiveness one takes care of all pre-salvation sins. But what happens 13 minutes after salvation when you sin again? You're out of fellowship. That sin's been paid for at the cross, but now it interrupts your fellowship with God, your rapport with God. It's called grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit. And this is what we'll call forgiveness subscript 2. Forgiveness subscript 2 deals then with post-salvation sins. Now, its basis is still the cross where they were paid for. All that happens when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, is that God the Father then applies in terms of our, our temporal relationship, T, right here, this is our temporal relationship, He applies the cross so that we are restored to fellowship. But the underlying basis, and this is what's given in 1 John 1, 7, says that the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. That's the basis. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's uh, forgiveness too. And then at salvation, at phase three glorification, when we lose the sin nature, we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. There we experience eternal forgiveness. And even if you die out of fellowship because you lose the sin nature and you're glorified face to face with the Lord, you will experience eternal forgiveness and sin will no longer be an issue. So all sins, under point two, all sins can be classified as either pre-salvation sins or post-salvation sins. The solution for all sins is at the cross, but we must have Forgiveness in phase two if we're going to advance in the spiritual life when we sin. Point number three. When the believer is growing and advancing in the spiritual life, he's still going to commit sins. He still has a sin nature. That sin nature is just as powerful, just as wicked, just as evil as it was. It is the principle of evil. Our human sin nature is no less evil than Lucifer's sin nature. Your sin nature is no less evil than Adolf Hitler's, Joseph Stalin's, Ayatollah Khomeini's, Idi Amin's sin nature. Now that may shock some of you because you think you're basically a nice person. But your sin nature is as qualitatively evil as any other person's. By its very nature, it is wicked and evil. The only thing that keeps it from being as wicked and evil is the restraint of the, the overall restraint in terms of common grace of the Holy Spirit and perhaps the discipline and establishment principles that you were taught as a child. But any of us can produce that. That's why when people say, well, don't you think Hitler was demon-possessed? I'm not going to say he wasn't. I don't know. That is clearly possible. I know at least he was demon-influenced. But just because he was that evil does not necessitate that it had to have been from some external evil force. See, what underlies that question, now think about this, what underlies that question is that we just don't like to think that a human being on his own is really capable of that much evil. And what the Bible says is, yes, you are. Don't whitewash yourself. You are as capable of that degree of evil as anybody else, even as a believer. 
the sin nature, the only thing that happens at salvation is the power of the sin nature is broken. It is not reduced, diminished, or removed, or partially eradicated. It's just that now you have the option of not following its dictates. So when the believer is growing and advancing in the spiritual life, he still commits sins. When you confess those sins, you're restored to fellowship, but you need to keep moving. It's not just a matter of getting back in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. When we use the diagram of the top and bottom circle, it's not just an issue of getting back in fellowship. This isn't just a static position. Oh, whew, I confess my sins, I'm forgiven, now I'm moving. No, movement is a result of volitional decisions to apply doctrine. So that means you have to make decisions to learn the Word, to apply the Word, and to move forward in that step-by-step, moment-by-moment walk as you advance spiritually. Point number four, failure to rebound leaves you under sin nature control. So if you sin, the instant you sin, you're out of fellowship over here in the realm of carnality, under the control of the sin nature Walking in darkness, 1 John 1, 6. Walking in darkness. Out here, that's, you, you can sin, and if you're not out here very long and you confess your sins, then you're back in fellowship. If you stay out here very long, then you're in the status of simple carnality. Now, that comes, the word carnality is an old King James word. Newer versions call it fleshly. Because your life is characterized by the sin nature. And in 1 Corinthians 1.3, Paul says to the Corinthians, I have to address you as fleshly. Are you now walking like mere men? In other words, you're believers, but you're walking like unbelievers who don't have the power of God in their life. So I have to straighten you out. And he uses a word, he calls them babes in Christ. And he's not using the word brephos which indicates an infant and a sweet little baby. He uses a, a, a word that has a very pejorative term, just like we call some, somebody who's acting whiny and gripey. Now, you baby, straighten up. That's how that word is used. It's a very insulting term that Paul uses there. You know, I've got to talk to you like babies now. You ought to know better. I was there for three years. I taught you a lot of doctrine. You're just acting like some crying, whiny spiritual baby and living like an unbeliever. Straighten up. Now, if you stay in carnality for very long, the longer you stay, the more you lose momentum. You're growing over here, you're walking, and you're picking up speed, and all of a sudden you commit a sin. You stumble. If you go down and stay in that position, you're going to stop all forward progression, and you're going to start losing Momentum. You're going to start going backward. You will start reversing your direction. Instead of advancing, spiritual retreat sets in. The longer you stay out of fellowship, the more that retreat takes place. Because remember, when you're out of fellowship, you're under the control of the sin nature. You may still be coming to church, coming to Bible class, taking notes, trying to claim promises, all of that, but you're out of fellowship, so it's human good. So you're just in carnality. You may be in moral carnality, and not immoral carnality, but you're still in carnality, and you're still sinning and living outside the power that God has provided, and you are living according to the world, and you have made yourself an enemy to God. So this is what we mean by reversionism, is that you are reversing course in the spiritual life. 
Instead of advancing, you are now retreating. You are reversing and going backward. Point number five. Reversionism often begins in the context of a test. Almost every situation in life is a test. That test means that we have the option to respond positively by applying doctrine or negatively. That test can come in the form of prosperity or it can come in the form of adversity. But when we hit that test, we have a situation that comes up and we decide instead of applying doctrine, we are going to respond negatively and handle it on the basis of our own limited human resources either through sin or through human good, but we're going to solve it through our own limited human resources. And when that outside pressure now of prosperity or adversity hits the soul, and the soul has moved out of the soul fortress and is no longer applying the ten stress busters to handle adversity and prosperity, then what happens is fragmentation sets into the soul and fissures and cracks begin to appear and you begin to back up. It's characterized by a failure to confess sins, a failure to use the stress busters, a failure to understand and apply the unique assets that God has given us in the church age, a failure to rely upon the inerrancy and infallibility of God's revelation to us in the Bible, and a failure to believe in and accept the sufficiency of the cross and the sufficiency of grace to solve our problems. And as a result, the soul begins to fragment. Now, this may not become apparent for some time, depending upon how long you go before you finally utilize God's grace recovery procedure. But reversionism often begins in the form of this test, and this leads us to the first stage of reversionism, which is reaction to the test. We react in some way, either I'm going to handle it, and this is a wonderful opportunity, I'm having such blessing here and such prosperity, and we just get involved in the pleasure for pleasure's sake, and that, that's a reaction, and then it distracts us from doctrine. We're too busy making money, too busy having a good time, too busy enjoying our success and happiness in life, and we don't get to Bible class, we don't listen to tapes, and we begin to fall away. So that's what happens. It's related to the fact that there's some test of some form, maybe small, maybe great, but it causes us to react, start relying upon our own resources, and we're distracted from doctrine. Point number six. Reversionism is defined as the believer's love affair with the cosmic system and the rejection of God's grace system. Now, when you sin... At any point in time, when any of us sin, we're out of fellowship and we're in darkness. Now, if we stay there for very long, it's because we want to. We've exercised our volition negatively towards 1 John 1, 9, and we've chosen to stay out of fellowship. And if that goes on, it is because we are having a lot more fun and enjoying ourselves a lot more over here in carnality. I once had a counselor at a Christian camp. One night we had a, for our evening devotions, which I always thought were a little silly, we were discussing whether or not sin was fun. I always wanted to ask this guy later in life, I still know who he is, I still see him every now and then. Um, 
I always wanted to ask him, because we got in a big argument, I was telling him sin was fine. And he was coming from a little holier-than-thou, self-righteous position that sin really wasn't fun. About five years later, he had a gorgeous wife. About five years later, he left her. Got involved in an affair, went on for years. I mean, the guy was, it was just a mess. I always wanted to ask him, well, <laughs> is sin fun? Have <laughs> we learned this experientially now? But we get out here and we get distracted from doctrine. And the longer we stay out there, what we're basically developing is a love affair with carnality and the cosmic system. And we are rejecting God and His grace recovery procedure and His grace solution for life, which is what takes place inside the bottom circle. So reversionism is defined as a believer's love affair with the cosmic system and a rejection of God's grace system. In reversionism, we reverse the intended direction of God's plan and go off course. We studied that terminology in Galatians 5.4 when Paul says they've been shipwrecked or gone off course from grace. You've cut yourself off from grace. We go off course from grace into legalism, morality, immorality, licentiousness, all kinds of things. In reversionism, the believer enters into either moral or immoral degeneracy. I think this is one of the hardest things for people to recognize because we've been so inculcated with a worldly kind of thinking that anything that is moral is good. But there are many moral people in Scripture defined as hypocrites because their morality is for believer and unbeliever. Morality is not the same as righteousness. And you can be operating on the sin nature and your trend is towards asceticism and legalism and you can be in moral degeneracy and you're going to end up being just as unhappy and miserable as a reversionist. And the lights go off. Okay, and the lights are back on. See, we didn't stay in darkness long. We had to do grace recovery procedure so that we could be back in the light. On the other hand, you have, if your trend is towards antinomianism, licentiousness, and lasciviousness, then you go into immoral degeneracy. This is what most people think of as sinfulness. But folks, this is just as bad. When you're operating in moral degeneracy, there's a lot of self-deception there because you think you're okay. You're producing a lot of human good that looks like divine good, and it's very deceptive and destructive. Point number seven, in reversionism... The believer evacuates the soul fortress provided by the ten stress busters and seeks solace and comfort from the adversities of life in the doctrines, values, and lifestyle of the cosmic system. You're trying to solve your problems man's ways. It works. You can take drugs. You can get involved in alcohol. You can get involved in... uh, in uh, running after pleasure and happiness, and it seems to work. It deadens the pain, and you're having a wonderful time. And it may last for a number of years and be quite enjoyable, but the end will be miserable. It is a love affair with the doctrine, values, and lifestyle of the cosmic system. And even though it might make life work, it is false. Point number eight. In carnality, the believer is simply living under the dictates of the sin nature. In reversionism, the believer reaches a point where he will no longer care to recover from carnality. It becomes too difficult, too hard, there's too much antagonism, you've gone so far down that road 
that it seems overwhelming to back up. Point number nine. Let's look at these eight stages of reversionism. Stage one is reaction and distraction. This is a stage when you're presented with some situation, some circumstance, either an adversity in life or some pleasurable circumstance in relation to prosperity and blessing, and you react to that in some way and become distracted from doctrine. You can react with mental attitude sins such as anger, bitterness, resentment, hostility. You start blaming God and blaming others for your problems. And the next thing you know, you don't spend enough time in Bible class. You're too busy running around panicking. Excuse me. You get absorbed in self-pity. And you become self-absorbed, which is the beginning of the arrogant skills. So you become self-absorbed, self-focused in all of your situation, whether it's pleasure. You can be just as self-absorbed in prosperity as you can in adversity. And you're distracted from doctrine, which is the only source of stability, tranquility, comfort, and happiness. In the long run, the only thing that is going to give your life stability, the only thing that's going to get you off of drugs, off of alcohol, the only thing that's going to get you past all your bad habits is going to be doctrine. Now, once you get into this stage, what happens if you stay there for very long, this is the first stage of almost any sin, and if you remember, there's always, if you're still alive, God has a plan for your life, and there's a grace recovery procedure. Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and if you stick with doctrine, and you make it a priority, then you can recover. I've seen it happen. But what happens if you stay in, the, in carnality for long, then you develop a vacuum in, that, in your soul because there's an absence of doctrine, and just as nature abhors a vacuum, the soul abhors a vacuum, and so you're going to start sucking in all kinds of false doctrine, which is called the doctrines of demons, human viewpoint thinking, or cosmic thinking. It's all the same thing. This leads to the second stage in reversionism. second stage is a frantic search for happiness. See, what happens is now that you have divorced yourself from the Scriptures, which is the soul source of stability and happiness, you start looking for happiness somewhere else. With the introduction of, of um, cosmic thinking, you start adopting false value systems. You get a false scale of values and false priorities, and you start looking everywhere in terms in the created order for your happiness. Now, the frantic search for happiness. Now, remember, the Bible says that the creation is absolutely distinct from the Creator. But what happens at this stage is instead of looking here to the infinite immutable, that means the never-changing, always stable God, instead of looking there for your source of happiness and stability, you look horizontally at the creation in order to find something there that's going to give you happiness and meaning and value in life. This is what Paul defines in Romans 1 when he says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. Human viewpoint is also called in the Scripture foolishness. And so you start seeking meaning, value, and happiness in life from some other aspect of the, of the creation. You look for it in pleasure. 
You look for it in making money and success, in sex, drugs, alcohol, approbation, recognition, fame, power. All of these things then become a source of happiness. As soon as one doesn't work, or you get tired with it or bored with it, Proverbs says a backslider gets bored with his ways, then you shift to something else. That's why you find people, they start off with one drug, then they go to the next, then they go to the next, always looking for a better high, a better happiness, better sense of tranquility, always trying to deaden the pain and misery in their life and try to find some level of happiness. The principle for the believer is, if you are not content with what you have, whether you have or have not, because your contentment is based on something outside of the created order, you will never be happy. As long as you are looking to something inside the creation to, pro- to provide you happiness, you will guarantee a life of misery. 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7, Paul says, Godliness, that is a spiritual life, is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world... So we cannot take anything out of it either. The bottom line is all we have is that relationship with God and that's what gives meaning and purpose and definition to everything else. Philippians 4.11, Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Whether I have abundance or I suffer need, Paul then says, I can do all things. And what he means by I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is I can live in any circumstance, either in poverty or wealth, either in prison, which he was at the time, or as a free man, either in negative circumstances or positive circumstances. I can live in anything through Christ who strengthens me because my stability is not based on something, some circumstance, some emotion, some feeling, some approbation, some aspect of the created order. Now, if we go through the frantic search of happiness, then what happens eventually is going to be a boomerang effect. Stage three is Operation Boomerang. Now, a boomerang, for those of you who don't know, is kind of an elbow-shaped wooden weapon that was developed by the Aborigines in Australia. And it's designed in such a way that when they throw it, they throw it and they can hit some small animal and kill it. But if they miss, it's designed to keep spinning and then return back to the hunter so he can recover his weapon and then try again. And that's essentially what happens here is as soon as you shoot at your target pleasure to find happiness, you miss. And then you shoot at another target and you miss. And so Operation Boomerang is an intensified stage of the frantic search for happiness. And what happens here is you move here from self-absorption in stage one to self-indulgence in the frantic search for happiness. And now, as that intensifies in Operation Boomerang, you become an expert at self-justification. And in self-justification, at that stage, you are teetering on the absolute loss of objectivity in your life. And what I mean by that is that now, at this stage, When you start getting into crises and problems and difficulties in life, your judgment is impaired. You can't objectively analyze the situation anymore because you have divorced yourself from the the, uh, values 
and the, uh, the objective values and absolutes necessary in order to properly evaluate a scenario and reach the correct conclusion so that you can apply the correct problem-solving devices. So now that you get into self-justification, you are on the verge of being completely divorced from reality and you can't see things as they truly are. The Bible becomes less and less relevant to you. And how many times have I seen that when I've talked to people? Well, the Bible just doesn't seem relevant to me. The pastor doesn't make it relevant anymore. And I always used to laugh at that in seminary. There were a few of us that used to go around. We used to always say under our breath, you know, God's not supposed to be relevant to us. Problem is, we're supposed to become relevant to God. He's the absolute. So the problem with people is they always want God to come down to their level, not recognize that we're the ones who've departed and we have to come back to God. The fourth stage is the emotional revolt of the soul. Now, in emotional revolt, we have to understand the basic makeup of the soul. The soul is comprised of self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, and volition. Mentality is the cognitive function. This is where thinking takes place. Emotion is designed by God as a responder, not to outside life circumstances, but a responder to what's going on in the thinking of the soul. Because when you have external events that take place in your life, whether they are adversity or prosperity, you're, they have to be interpreted and analyzed. And this takes place in the mentality of your soul. And then you interpret that, this is a good thing, and your emotion responds and you feel good. You interpret this, this is a bad thing. And your emotions respond and you're sad or depressed or discouraged. So your emotions always respond to what's going on in the mentality of your soul. Now what happens, and this happens a lot in, in churches, and people get into a situation where they go through life, they've made a lot of bad scenarios and they get overloaded with guilt, they can't make any good decisions, they're just a loser and they know it, and all of a sudden... They get to church and they find out about grace and this burden is lifted and they feel wonderful. Now, all of a sudden, they take this feeling and they identify that as the criterion for their relationship with God. So now what they're bent on, because they're in emotional revolt and their emotions are driving them instead of their thinking, they're trying to reduplicate that feeling. So they're going to walk that aisle a thousand times. They're going to keep going from church to church trying to find something to generate that emotion again. An emotional revolt, instead of the, the thinking... The, see, the way God's designed it, the mentality is in the driver's seat and is the car up front and the, emo, the emotion is the trailer that's pulled behind the car. But in emotional revolt, we start letting our emotions dictate what we think and how we interact with reality. Emotions set the criteria. Emotions determine everything. So emotions start running the show and we end up really getting into a terrible situation of irrationality and where emotion becomes a, uh, a dictator to the soul. And emotion in itself then becomes very addictive and it distracts and blinds us even further to reality. 
because now reality is is being totally interpreted in terms of emotion and how it makes me feel. And we see how destructive this is because we have a whole culture operating at this level now where they live on emotional revolt and they determine the value of anything by how it makes you feel through pure subjectivity. And it's at this stage that we've moved from self-justification into pure self-deception. And from this point on, in the next stages of reversionism, this is why the next stage, point number five, is called hardened negative volition. This is hardened or almost locked in negative volition. Because you have put yourself so far behind the eight ball at this point by years and years and years of bad thought habits and bad reactions and bad problem solving that you have to overcome all of these bad decisions. You now put yourself in such a position of weakness that it's almost impossible. But it's not impossible. Because you see, there is always the grace of God and God's grace recovery procedure. And the issue now really depends on your volition. And you have to use 1 John 1, 9 maybe every 15 seconds. And you have to start memorizing promises. And maybe you need to lock yourself in a room and listen to tapes 12 hours a day. Whatever it takes in order to start reversing your thinking and start filling your soul up with doctrine and then start putting that into practice. And then slowly but surely... Remember, it took 10, 15, 20, 30 years to put yourself in that mess. And it may take 10, 15 years to to get out of it. Now, you'll start seeing some real benefits very soon. But it takes years to recover. It doesn't happen overnight any more than getting there happened overnight. But we'll finish up next time. We got through the first four points. And we'll finish points five through eight on the doctrine of reversionism next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this privilege to look at Your Word to see how remarkable Your grace is, that it's overcome every problem, every difficulty we put in its way, and it's all solved at the cross. Father, we thank You for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, that He paid the penalty and He provided all the solution, and we have Your Word. Father, I pray that You would challenge us with the things we've learned tonight, challenge us to go forward in our spiritual life, and not to be pulled back by the thinking of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.